had elements of the true version of me, but it wasn't the true version of me. And that created this existential gap inside of me. Arguably, many people deal with similar issues at midlife. I happen to be 38. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Ray Kroc. The quality of a leader is reflected in the standards they set for themselves. My guest today, Jerry Colonna, is the CEO and co-founder of the executive coaching firm Reboot.io. A highly sought-after coach and speaker, Jerry was previously a partner with J.P. Morgan and co-founded Flatiron Partners with Fred Wilson. Jerry's also written a new book, Reunion, which is now available wherever books are sold. Jerry, welcome. It's great to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really a delight to see you again and to be on the show. Yeah, we got a chance to meet. And lucky enough, you were at my dinner for table at the Mastermind Talks event a few months back. I really enjoyed seeing you speak and hearing a lot of the material in the books come to life. It was really a pleasure to be there. And, and that dinner was a fun dinner. Yeah, Jason. Jason's a very good matchmaker at dinner. He spends, I think, months <laughs> picking, the, <laughs> picking those, picking those dinner, dinner tables. So you start Reboot talking a lot about your childhood and the impact it's had on you and, and I think specifically the work that you're doing today. Can you dive a little bit into that for our listeners, for those who haven't read your book yet? Into Reboot, my first book. Yeah, and it's just it's childhood experience and the impact that that sort of had on you. We, we spent some time talking about the connection that we see a lot in terms of leadership today and sort of things that happened to us in our formative years. Well, perhaps the best way to answer the question is I start by talking about my childhood because I believe very strongly that those of us who hold a position of authority or power have a responsibility to go first. And by first, I don't mean grab the microphone and never let it go. I mean to really do the interior work of trying to understand how is it that who I am and how I have grown shapes how I am as a leader. Because too often, I have found myself working with people who don't understand, say, the toxicity within their organization or, say, the struggles that they're going through within the organization. They don't necessarily understand the connection back to their internal belief systems, or as I describe them in Reboot, their subroutines, that lower level of patterns that kind of shape everything that we do. Is it that they don't want to see it or they don't see it? <laughs> I often wonder sometimes when you talk to someone and it's really obvious. I remember having dinner with someone years ago and she told me that she could, she was talking about Facebook or social media and people talking about their happy marriages. And she could tell from a mile away when someone was going to get divorced. And so I just happened to ask the question like, oh, what happened to your parents? And she's like, oh, my dad left and kind of blindsided my mom and said, have you, have you ever thought about that connection? And she looked at me and she just looked stunned. And I, I was like, I was, I guess I was, I don't know who was more stunned, me or her in that scenario. Mm. So I think you ask a really important question, you know, is it that they don't want to see it or is it that they can't? And the answer is probably both. And to use a phrase, the poet John O'Donoghue has this brilliant blessing called blessing for a leader. 
And there's a line in there which goes like this, may you be surrounded by good friends who mirror your blind spots. The truth of the matter is, part of the way we contend, if you will, with the difficulties of just simply growing into adulthood is that we place things into our blind spot. I'll say that again. We place things into our blind spot so we don't see it. And we do that not because there's something wrong with us. We do that in order to be able to withstand the pain. So you talk about your friend. I would probably suggest that maybe the experience that she had of her father leaving the family created enough pain and suffering that she placed the whole experience in her blind spot. But that doesn't mean it's not accessible to her. No, and she clearly developed heightened sense of pattern analysis and ability to spot things that looked... Well, I would go one step further. I would say, as a little girl, she probably felt a tremendous sense of empathy and maybe even responsibility for her mother. And so what she may have developed is an internal subroutine which which said you better be on the lookout for someone leaving and so her hypervigilance got tuned into looking for someone who might be just you know leaving and a relationship might be perhaps being broken up so you talk about you had a difficult family situation it wasn't easy a lot of siblings what number were you i was number 6 out of 7 6 out of 7 what sort of got you through into your career? What was the progression of sort of getting through that and getting out into the business world and starting your career? You know, I was actually just thinking about this, this, that very issue this past weekend, because I was visiting some family and friends and really asking myself, if you will, well, how did I get to where I am? And I revisited a scene that I actually write about in Reboot, which was, I was about 15, 16 years old. And my mother, who was mentally ill, and my father, who is an alcoholic, so that's how his mental illness showed up, we're yet again fighting. And after everybody had gone to bed, I ran away. And I was I spent the night under the boardwalk in Coney Island. I grew up in Brooklyn. And there was this moment when the sun was rising and my body was really hurting because it wasn't particularly comfortable. And I was like groggy and like, what the hell am I doing and I remember just feeling so frustrated with my life at that point. And I stood up and I declared, really, I yelled, this is not going to be my life. And so you ask, in a sense, what the trajectory, you, you mentioned before that I was a former venture capitalist, I worked at JP Morgan, I launched a successful firm. But my recollection of that trajectory shifting began under the boardwalk in Coney Island. And in a sense, it was both a declaration of my intention and a kind of decision to not follow the path that was so clearly unfolding for me. And you, I mean, you had no support structure, so that had to come from within, right? There was no, you had to go out there and figure out how to hustle and how to make that happen. Yeah. And I think even at, at that early age, what support structure I had was incredible mentors and teachers. I remember one teacher, there was this one moment, again, when I was in high school and I was about 17 or 18 at this point, so about a year later, and I had started cutting classes. And I was in the top 5% of the students at the school. So it was unusual for me to start cutting classes. 
And I remember one assistant principal seeing me in the hallway and her wagging her finger at me and going, what's going on with you? And I went into her office and I burst into tears. And a couple of other teachers who were very close to me at the time came into the office. And there were all these adults who, in hindsight, thank God, cared for me. And I left school and they sent me to this therapist who was just a few blocks away and saved my life. I was going to say, you must have had some teacher or mentor, you know, someone who really advocated for you, saw the, saw the potential. Yeah. I, I mean, my life has been marked by brilliant, wonderful, mentoring adults who saw something in me that I struggled to see. And so, you know, I tell this story in Reboot, a professor in college awarding me a scholarship that enabled me to pay my tuition and stay in school, even though I was struggling, which then led to an internship at a small publishing firm on Long Island, which led to me being promoted and eventually being the youngest editor in the company's history, which led to me being discovered by some friends who were starting a venture capital fund, which led me to become a venture capitalist, which led me to then discover Fred Wilson, who continues to this day be one of my closest friends. And so again, I liken these experiences as kind of asteroids that strike us and setting us on the right course. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I mentioned this when we had dinner, but I, it's funny because 
I've been in and around the venture capital world and a little bit the private equity world. I would generally categorize the venture capital world as not very interested in culture, breaking a lot of things, breaking a lot of people. I I mean, you were very successful. Flatiron is one of the most successful firms. What was your, did you have a different mindset then or what was your focus and what was your investment rubric? I'm also curious, like what was the biggest win and what was the biggest sort of miss during your investment career? Well, I'll circle back and give you the examples of what you're talking about. I want to respond to the first observation. I understand why that's your impression. That is not my experience, but I understand why people have that impression. Yeah. And there's different flavors, I, right? So sure. I, yeah. I mean, there are jerks in every field. I mean, nobody has a, a you know dominant position in, in having jerks in their field, right? Plenty to go around. There's plenty to go around. I remember early in my career, I was struggling about whether or not I was going to be a good venture capitalist, and I had a lot of self-doubt. And a fellow who has subsequently become one of my closest, if not my closest friend, Brad Feld, who's also a very successful venture capitalist himself, we were talking one night, and I was sharing my self-doubt, and I said something like, I can't be like, and I would just sort of rattle off a bunch of names. And he said, well, stop trying to be like those people. Why don't you just be the kind of VC that you are? And it was like a cheat code. It kind of unlocked something in me. And the result was that I was the kind of VC who could peer into the future, if you will, who could look at, say, one of my earliest investments was a search engine called Lycos. Yeah, I've heard of that. I lived through that first internet craziness. Yeah. So you remember, yeah, I right? Remember and that. I remember... Was that the dog? Yeah, we used the dog as, yeah. the, as the image because we would, instead of searching, we, we used the phrase fetch it. And in the early days, I remember walking through a, the halls of the Heinz Convention Center. I won't say with who, but with an executive that... That's my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, that's the old convention center in Boston, yeah. Yeah. We were recruiting somebody to come be a top executive at the company. And I remember him looking at me and saying, come on, do you really think that people are going to sell $100 million or $200 million worth of advertising on the internet? And I looked at him and I said, you don't understand. This is going to replace all other medium because it's so much more efficient. Now, it hasn't entirely come true, but it's pretty darn close. And so was I the most sophisticated? I was certainly more right than he was willing to give me credit for at that moment. He believed me. He joined the company and he made millions, if not hundreds of millions. But the point is that I had a capacity to see the potential. And that was the kind of VC that I was. Not every VC does that. Some VCs are much better at structuring a good deal. Some VCs are much better at finding really good people. But I also have to think you were probably a bet on the horse type person or bet on the jockey, not the horse type person. I could do both, which maybe was the best thing about me as an investor, right? I mean, I was a tiny early stage investor in Twitter. This is long after becoming a, long after leaving my position as a VC and becoming a coach. I was an angel and the returns on that were really great returns, because I could look at that and I could say, this is a technology that's going to become, this is an experience that will become ubiquitous. And I think that that was one of the keys. 
I guess right field and right jockey, <laughs> maybe more than the horse. Yeah, but I also made some spectacular mistakes. So, what did you learn from your biggest mistake in investing? That I would believe too much in my future forecasting. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a strength as a weakness, overused. Yeah, and I would often overlook red flags because I wanted to believe so much. So, so. You spent some time in, in venture, JP Morgan, as I said. What made you make the transition in, into coaching? Two-step process, right? The first transition was out of venture. And then it was this sort of long period of being in this sort of existential desert of like, what do I do with my life? And then eventually becoming a coach. And to answer the, the first question, so much of what I had constructed for myself in my 20s and 30s felt false. And so, well, the more successful I became, and I became very, very successful, the more I felt like it was a sham, that I was a charlatan. In hindsight, what was happening was that I was living further and further away from who I really was as a person. My friend and teacher, Parker Palmer, describes it as living crosswise with oneself. And the outer version of me had elements of the true version of me, but it wasn't the true version of me. And that created this existential gap inside of me. Arguably, many people deal with similar issues at midlife. I happen to be 38. You were ahead of your time. You said you could see around corners. So you had to, you know. I was always precocious. Started the midlife crisis a little earlier. A little early. And I walked away from the business, not really knowing what I was going to do next. And then slowly doing my work during that period, it became clearer and clearer to me that I wanted to spend my time in the realm that you and I are spending our time in right now, in the realm that you and I spent time even at that dinner. I'm going to ask you something. You tell me if my impression is true. The person that you're talking to now is the same person that sat next to you at dinner who's the same person who did that talk at that Mastermind Talks event that we were at. I am me. Uh, you, I cut you off. Yeah, no, you are the same. I will vouch for that. <laughs> right. That's the difference. I mean, if you want a visceral expression of it, at about 38, 39 years old, I saw the falsity of living my life in such a way as to evoke adoration. That's what I was going to ask you, and it might be both. Was it to avoid sort of pain and looking inward, or was it to get the public acceptance and adoration of others that when you have success becomes a little bit of a, a flywheel? I don't think that I was avoiding the pain of looking inward as much as, say, other times in my life I might have. To be clear, when I was, I was telling that story about being in high school. Shortly after graduating high school, the depression got so bad that I attempted suicide. And I went into therapy again. And as I've often spoken about, I've been journaling since I was 13. So I wouldn't say that I was not, that I was unafraid to look inward. I think it's more appropriate to say I hadn't yet developed the tools to do with the information to do something with the information that I would get when I would look inward. I would look inward and feel terrible. And then the corollary was that I was mistaking adoration for love. And that's a mistake I think many people make. 
A hundred percent. And because it feels good. And my, my experience with a lot of entrepreneurs too, I don't know if yours is the same, is that they, you know, they didn't fit in to the system early on. They were not color inside the lines people. They probably had a little ADD. They were probably getting in trouble in class. They were not winning most likely to succeed awards. And then they finally trip into this thing that they're good at, which is rewarding creativity in this off the wall stuff. And they start getting accolades for that. And it becomes addictive. It becomes the trophies they didn't get and the A grades they didn't get. And it's very hard to get off that hamster wheel once it starts spinning pretty fast. Well, I think you're right. Although I think that there's a corollary to that, which is if you just, you describe the person who might not have felt like they fit in, let's describe the people who are super high achievers, who everything they touched seem to turn to gold. And they also have a little whispery voice inside of their heads that says, you're faking it. And then they mistake getting straight A's for love. Right. Well, they all, they also, I think there's some luck, right? And if, if, if everything goes your way early on, it's probably easier, I think, if things don't go your way, maybe then start going your way, then they go your way really early and then they don't. Well, let's go to the common denominator between all of these scenarios that we're talking about. What is not encouraged in our children is being yourself, right? Compliance is encouraged. I was just going to say, because that inherently would require being different. And unless you're in a Montessori school or something that really is about that, those systems are about standardization, right? And Seth Godin talks a lot about this. It's about everyone learns the same thing, same class. You got to do this thing you hate. This is what I've never understood in having my second kid apply to college. And you talk to all these schools and they want you to have an A in everything you ever did, right? Even the stuff that you didn't like and you don't want to <laughs> do again. It just seems such like a false standard. And against what makes people really great, which is they were like, you know what? I did that and I got to be in it and I had no interest in it, but I love this and I'm doing amazing in it because I've thrown my heart and soul into it. Yeah. But it also, I think the same thinking manifests in our inability to teach children what to do with suffering or what to do with negative emotions. And what we're supposed to do with negative emotions is be with them. That's called compassion. And so then we look at epidemics of depression and anxiety. Yeah, helicopter parenting is not a good strategy for that. Helicopter parenting isn't a good strategy, but neither is not knowing what to do with it, not recognizing that this is what's going on. And so then we give these people power and agency in organizations, and then we wonder why we have toxic combinations in organizations. So the achievement challenge that you talked about, the compliance that you and Seth will speak about, that's real. But even more rooted is the, I don't know what to do with me be feeling different. Forget about being different. So we suffer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let me ask you something, because when you think about before you talked about the challenges that you obviously had to to overcome and someone could have said, poor Jerry, look at these insurmountable things that he had to face and he could be angry and mad and all of these things. You know, a lot of this has popped up in the last month when we're looking into understandably some of the historical injustices and, and otherwise, but some of the things that are going on on campuses and stuff today that I really disagree with, and I wrote about this, is that is we're, we're instead of teaching agency, we seem to be teaching people to be victims and to be aggrieved. I'm just not clear how that solves any of the problems of the world or makes things better. I, I understand why some people feel that way, but if if you had had that orientation or someone had hone that orientation into you, I think it would have looked very different for you. So there's almost two parts to your question and your observation. So I'm going to take each part. One of the most important quotes that I learned in that period of being in the desert after being a VC and before I became a coach, I stumbled upon this quote from Carl Jung, which was, I am not what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become. And that's the agency that you're speaking about. And you're right. Just like that kid who stood under the boardwalk and said, this is not going to be my life. There was an agency. There was a hopeful agency. And yes, you're right. We're seeing a response to the violence of the world that denies our own agency. And I am with you in decrying that response. There is no excuse for hate whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-immigration feeling. I mean, the truth is there is a through line that connects all of this. What I am curious about, because I am trained to respond to suffering with compassion, what I am really curious about is what is the suffering that exists in an individual, whether they're tearing down posters of kidnapped children or calling for the destruction of a particular group of people? What is the suffering inside of them that has been weaponized by truly evil forces? We get so fixated on outrage meeting outrage. <laughs> yeah. Beyond problem solving, we're not even paying attention to the true culprits. Hannah Arendt spoke of the banality of evil in writing about the Nazis. And the banal aspect of what's going on is that there are literally people who benefit from division. And those are the people who should feel our ire. Now, I'm not excusing hateful violence, but I'm wise enough to understand that hateful violence still serves somebody. And when we pretend that there aren't forces that are being that are benefiting from me wanting to kill you or you wanting to kill me, then we are easily manipulated. And the merry-go-round goes on and on and on and on, and this one kills this one, and that one kills that one. Do you think our educational institutions, and I'll speak for the U.S., but but have a 
more pressure or responsibility just not, not to teach the philosophies that are more likely to lead to this? Because I, again, there's there's the experience that you've had and your, your lived experience and that's different for each of us. And then there's someone really, as you said, teaching or weaponizing or trying to tell you that that is most of the people in the world. I mean, the 1% have had top 1% have had a perfect, nonviolent, non-suffering life. I mean, a, a lot of... Uh, the history has not been easy. Everyone has been challenged. We are a violent <laughs> species in some ways, if you read Sapiens or otherwise. So I do find this kind of whole narrative that you should just be angry about everything is not inherently making everything a little bit worse. Again, two parts that I see in, in your observation question. The first is to look at institutions. And if you want to look at educational institutions, we can look at educational institutions. I would ask you to consider all institutions, however, and remember something, that all institutions, educational and otherwise, are made up of flawed human beings. So we can decry the lack of sound, thoughtful leadership from, quote, institutions, but what we're really talking about is the lack of leadership from human beings. And what is it that those human beings lack? Well, this is, in a sense, what I wrote about in Reunion. I'm, over, I'm doing this because the book is here. Yeah, you segued into my, I was just going to ask you, because uh, I was going to say, uh, your mantra of better humans, better leaders. I, I love that. I couldn't agree with it more. I mean, I don't think we've needed it more than in the last month. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it. <laughs> so yeah, dive. <laughs> right. So so let's talk about that. You're, and you're right. My mantra for 20 years has been that better humans make better leaders. Right. And in the first iteration of that, it was like, well, duh, of course that's true. So why is it so difficult? Well, it's difficult because becoming a better human requires that we grow up. And most people don't want to grow up. The second half of that question, though, is to expand the definition of being a better human, to include being compassionate even to people with whom you disagree. Now, I'm going to pause. Every wisdom tradition I've ever seen says, in a sense, that we need to be compassionate even with people with whom we disagree. Compassionate, but don't be a doormat, okay? And what we lack, and you see, you're right, the last month alone, six weeks. But the truth is, this has been going on for millennia. What we don't do as a species is listen to our elders. Let's talk about the metaphorical elders who know better, who would slap you upside your head and say, sit up straight, eat your vegetables, and be kind. I understand that you feel suffering of the world. I understand that you're outraged at the suffering of the world. Do not meet outrage with outrageous behavior. That doesn't end the outrage. It doesn't end the suffering. Right. If you took all these Ivy League kids and forced them into some think tanks <laughs> that were only solution-oriented rather than what's gone on, you might actually have some good come out of it other than more division. I see what you're referring to when you say all these Ivy League kids. Be careful of the generalization. Yeah, and it obviously is a generalization. It's, it's hard not to view. But think about the experience that you're having. It's hard not to see a group of individuals as a nameless, faceless group of individuals and label them. Well, what are we talking about when we do that? We're talking about this very same behavior that leads to a kind of dehumanization, a depersonalization that actually in its furthest expression supports violence. So let's take a deep breath. Let's see what's really at play here. Can I curse? You can. Okay. There are evil in the world. 
okay? And they're pulling a bunch of strings. And it's not based on religious identity or the tribal identity. It's based on self-aggrandizement. Whether it's the head of a terrorist organization sitting on billions of dollars and hiding out somewhere else, while the people that they're supposedly supporting suffer. Or it's the head of a government whose political future is in jeopardy, who looks the other way, okay? The truth is, there is a banal evil that is behind the suffering. And we are doing, we are being manipulated when we generalize the other side as understandably reactive as it would be. I have a friend whose sister was murdered in front of her 13-year-old child on October 7th, okay? I understand his impulse for revenge, but God in heaven, every wisdom tradition teaches us that revenge is not the answer. Yeah, it's just the same cycle that, that we're in. But I understand it. Help me explain, again, and I think this will overlap in the leadership, why are so many of the leaders, very impressive, highly paid leaders of these institutions, having such a hard time finding their footing and their moral compass in ways, and you've seen the public suggestions and stuff that seem like they would be pretty straightforward. Let's go back to root causes again. We don't like to admit this, but the simple but hard is hard to do. It is simple, okay? Hate needs to be condemned in all its forms, period. There is no equivocation on this. There is no but what about isms. And historical context matters. And suffering over millennia matters. And there has been a global tendency to anti-Semitism, possibly for as long as there have been Jews on the, on the face of the earth. That is a historical reality. And we can do both. We can speak out and speak up with moral clarity and admit nuance and admit context and reach for deeper questions. Why do I know we can do this? Because it was done in South Africa. It has been done in our societies, right? We have elders in our society. What would Nelson Mandela say? What would the Mahatma Gandhi say? Would he say, drop more bombs? This is hard. Because we're talking about visceral, heartbreaking suffering. And we are never going to arrive at what I call reunion. Whereas the poet Bell Hooks said, when angels speak of love, they tell us all things are union and reunion. Well, we're not going to arrive at the place of where angels are speaking of love if we're not responding and overcoming our base impulses with love. Let's go into that inner work of the leader, because I know a lot of people come to you, come to your boot camps, workshops. You have a, a formula that you like to use. Can you talk a little bit about that? A lot of the times they're looking for practical skills, right? But I think that's a small part of your equation. So can you, can you go through that equation? I, I find it extremely informative. Yeah. So what you're referring to is the uh, simplistic way in which I present the work that we try to do. And it goes like this, practical skills plus radical self-inquiry, plus peer experiences or peer support equals enhanced leadership and greater resilience. So the practical skills are the stuff that takes care of the container of the business. How do I hire people? How do I fire people? How do I grow a team? How do I scale? The radical self-inquiry part asks us questions like, how am I supposed to grow as a leader? 
when I'm terrified? What is it that I worry about that keeps me up at night? And the peer experience is, how do I overcome my belief that I can't share any of this, that I am ultimately alone, so that I can reach out and receive and give empathy? That is the core of what we're trying to do. And I think you were asking a secondary piece of that question. I lost that. Yeah. So if I I had to go in order of what do I think people spend more time, probably some practical What's interesting, practical skills would come first. Hey, if I just know how to do this better, right, that'd be obvious. I think people then find themselves in some peer support, whether it's EO or YPO or a forum type MMT or a forum type structure. And sometimes then those structures lead themselves towards some of the radical self-inquiry. But I'm guessing that is probably the most important in that equation and maybe the third one that people really dive into and do the work on? Would that be accurate? I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I think that's totally accurate. And it's because the presenting challenge is the one that becomes top of mind. But as a coach, what I'm interested in is not solving your near-term daily problem. What I'm interested in is supporting your transformation so that you actually don't need a coach and you can solve the problems on your own. Talk to me about fix or shame. Say more about that. What do you mean? I heard, well, you mentioned it in our speech that that seemed tend to be a fault, right? You either fix it or, or be shamed on something. Well, fixing as the way I use it, the way coaches might use it is, or therapists might use it, turns everybody's experience into a problem. And you can usually get a telegraph moment that this is happening when someone says, well, you know what you should do? You should fill in the blank. The problem with that is that that actually doesn't create solutions. It doesn't create transformation. And, and the form structure actually normally doesn't allow that, right? It's why it's about experience share and not advice giving. Yeah, but it's really, really hard to untrain, especially those who are CEOs. That's why there's training for it, right? <laughs> yeah. But the corollary to that is that if we don't keep that under control, what ends up happening to the person receiving the fixing advice is that they start to feel shamed. Because why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of just firing my head of sales? Well, the truth is you did think of it. In fact, you lay awake at night for months on end thinking of it. But you also were trying to figure out, well, they're also a high performer. They just piss everybody off within the organization. So what do I do, right? The radical self-inquiry question is, why did you hire the person in the first place? What part of you were you outsourcing in order to get that person or bring that person in? When you say what part of you are were you outsourcing, how do you mean that? I've heard you say that. I, I could take that a couple of different ways. Could you give me an, like an example of a conversation where you've had? Sure. So I tell this story of a CEO who came to a boot camp that we had. I tell this story in Reboot of a CEO who came in complaining about his greedy SOB head of sales. Sounds, sounds on brand. Yeah. Yeah. And the first night, he's just pissed off at me because I'm reading poetry and I'm speaking. And he's like, what are we? I need to get rid of this person and I don't know how to get rid of this person. Blah, 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 blah. All right. So I convince him to stay. Two days go by and we're talking about the disowned parts of ourselves. We're talking about the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to acknowledge that are there. And again, he's getting really squirmy. He's getting really pissed off at me. He doesn't like this, right? And he said you know, I have this greedy SOB. And I stopped him in his tracks and I said, well, why did you hire the greedy SOB in the first place? And he pauses. 
And I said, what part of you is greedy? And he pauses. And I said, tell me about greed. And he starts crying and he starts telling about being 15, 14 years old, addicted to alcohol, running away, living under an overpass, and realizing that greed was an expression of himself because he had internalized. If he has all the toys... Yeah, it sounds like he had a very similar moment to you had, You had right? Exactly. And I could recognize that, like your friend who could look on Facebook and say, okay, that married, right? I could recognize that. And that's where I say, what you did was you outsourced your greed. Because greed as a word is not something that we are proud of. You hired him to do exactly that, <laughs> which he is doing. And he's being successful. Yeah. Maybe too, maybe too successful. <laughs> right? The goal is to actually take back the wish to have all the toys so he can be free. Someone give me an equation. I know you like equations too. I heard it on a show recently. They said, happy, to be happy, it might've been Morgan Housel said, what you want divided by what you need, right? And for most people, if they can't reduce the denominator, then the numerator just can never, can never keep up. Yeah. It's a, there's a wonderful poem. I forget who wrote it called The Tyranny of More. I'm, I'm trying to find this study. I was at a conference years ago and someone talked about a study and I've looked for it and I can't find it. Maybe it was a good story. But he said that they had interviewed people with a million dollars to a hundred million dollars in, in net worth. And, and they had asked them what, how much is enough specifically? Like how much is enough, you know, for you? And what, so what do you think the, the answer was in that study? It was always 20% more than they had. 30% more than they had. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. At every single level. At every single level. Yeah. So... How much is enough for you? For me? I'm asking you. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've thought about that a lot. I could tell you thought about it because of the questions that you were asking. Keep yeah. Going, and, and I think I was on, on that achievement hamster wheel where the more fulfilled the need, and until I actually identified that and became comfortable with that, it wasn't actually getting me what I wanted, I wasn't able to reverse that. So for me, it's enough is enough. Now. There's nothing more that's going to make me any happier. I think it's figuring out how to be smarter with, with what I do and, and, and my work because I, I almost fell off that hamster wheel. Right. Which is why a number of your questions, even today, circle back to that experience. Yeah. Well, one of your favorite, that ties to one of your favorite quotes, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will drive your life and you will call it fate. Yeah. That's also Carl Jung. Explain the fate part of that. Like, oh, you're, you're just, it's, these things are just doomed to keep happening to you. Yeah. It's not, it denies our own agency, right? It says it's just fate. It's just what happens. Look, this always happens to me. And the truth is that that kind of radical self-inquiry, the kind that you're doing, the kind that I recommend, the kind that I have gone through myself, puts you back in the driver's seat. And, you know, we were joking before about people being reluctant, if you will, to grow up. One of the things that people are reluctant to do is to take responsibility for their own lives. Not because of guilt. I don't want people walking away from this conversation saying, Jerry wants me to be guilty. Far from it. But I want you to be able to say, this is my life. And I have much, many more choices than I pretend. And positively and negatively, I'll try this again. We'll see if I don't get beat up this time. Positively and negatively, like cause and effect is really important. It's something I talk to my kids about. You do X and there's an outcome and you learn from it. It could be a good outcome. It could be a bad outcome, but it's sort of yours. I find that the parenting philosophy of the last 20 years, which I would call permissive and overbearing is my name on it, is has sort of wanted to take away this sort of 
accountability and it's not your fault and let's work around bad things. And it's sort of missing a huge thing. And I, this is where I think the problem has landed a little bit on a lot of college campuses. I think people are surprised that their behavior has outcomes. And I think the administrators in some cases are actually not following through with the things that they said they were going to do. You know, remember the, the bright red line from whatever administration was, and people are kind of surprised if there's accountability and that lack of accountability is, is really hurting agency in some way. And I think people need to feel that, you know, there's a lot of people who have confused and I'm not trying to make this play, but like, Free speech, yeah, free. You could speak freely. The government cannot arrest you, but don't think that that doesn't have consequences. <laughs> and then they want to be shielded from the consequences. I think what you're pushing up against is immaturity. I think what you're pushing up, which can manifest in a sense of entitlement, non-adulting, manifest, yeah. non-adulting. That's right. So let's go back to some of the root causes we were talking about. You know, I'm a parent. I've got three kids. They're all adults, 33, 31, and 26. The 26-year-old is about to get married. So they're very much adults. As long as they're not all living in your basement. No, no. They're all gainfully employed, all... I'm just kidding. Yeah. But the image, there typically tends to be two images that we as parents carry, stemming in part from our own anxiety. The first image is of the snowplow which I'm sure you're familiar with. Let me clear the path for you so it's easier. The second image of standing behind, pushing and driving them forward. Let me offer a third, which is stand shoulder to shoulder. Occasionally lean over and say, you make that decision, that could be a problem, but your decision to make. Now, you don't do that to a 10-year-old, but you might do it to an 18-year-old. Yeah, I love the quote. You probably heard it, but I think, I don't know, we need to, or the problem today, I don't remember stories, is, is that we need to prepare the child for the path, not prepare the path for the child. I love that. And that's part of the resilience that I was talking about, even with the formula, right? Or even with the equation that we we're talking about is our job as coaches, our job as leaders, our job as parents, our job as you know, romantic partners is not to do the work that the other person needs to do. I've encouraged people that are parents to also leaders to think through the leadership lens. And I, I understand they don't get 360 degree reviews from their children. But if the micromanagement at home, probably a lot of times the same at work, they would be on a performance review and be in retraining for needing to not micromanage more. And I think it's probably hard to break that. I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of correlation there. It's super hard. I mean, I was just on the phone with someone this morning and sharing another favorite quote of mine, which is being a parent's like wearing your heart outside your ribcage. I mean, we love our children. We don't want them to have any pain. And yet, right, what does the wisdom of a skinned knee teach us, which is a section in the Talmud, right? I also heard someone say that he was a prefrontal cortex for his boys. He was a roving <laughs> prefrontal cortex for his own boys. That goes with yours, but it's a little funnier. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that. You were about yeah. to say a quote, sorry. No, I, I just think it's there is something difficult about letting our children, letting our employees, letting people make mistakes. And yet that is part of the process. Yeah, that's part of the process to understand the consequence. Look, you've seen this. Sales leaders, the best sales leaders I have seen, they will not even get on the call. They will let the salesperson go on the call. They will record the call. The salesperson will fail horribly, lose the deal, and they will walk through later with them and coach them on the things that they could do better. The not good salesperson leader will get on the call and jump in and save the deal. And that person 
won't have that experience and they won't have that at failure. And I've seen that time and time again. Right. And yet, if they fail to close that deal, does that present an existential risk to the company? I mean, if you fail to close all the deals, maybe, but they're playing the, I think they're playing the pound and not the penny, right? Sure. But it's the same thing with parenting. You give the kid the keys to the car to the kids, and then you pray that they stay within the guardrails on the road. Yeah. The framework someone once described, which I really liked, was sort of military. Like they're above the water and below the water line, you know, holes. And <laughs> focus on, you know, the above the waterline holes, not going to sink the ship. And But the ones, if you think it's a below the waterline issue, then you intervene. Right. And hopefully as they age, the vulnerability to below the waterline bullet holes gets fewer and fewer and fewer, gets slow, lower and lower. So I know a question you, you prompt people to think about in reunion, and which I love. I've heard you <laughs> use it a lot. How have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? I'd love to hear a personal anecdote on that if you have one. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> that question, and no, I'm more than happy to, that question came, developed out of conversations I had with my therapist going back 25 years ago, which is the realization that I have been co-creating, not generating so many of the conditions that I grew up with. So a classic example for me would be because I feared conflict as a child, because conflict would often end in violence, I might withhold the truth of how I'm actually feeling about something. And until I can find the right time to say to a partner, a loved one, the thing that I know would upset them. And so I might shade the truth a little bit. And, and then, of course, what happens is they find out the information and they're even more upset, right? And they're... <laughs> Right. And it's my experience when we hold these things back is that they always come out and they all come out at once. Right. When, and when, they always come out worse. When the dam bursts, it, you say when you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're five and you first formulate this as a response, that's not always true. I mean, you don't know that that's true. So, with a little bit of empathy for yourself, you understand what's going on there. And then you start to say, okay, I'm laying awake at night, anxiously anticipating this conversation. That's how I have been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want. For me, the most powerful has always been when, you know, like one of the, the follow-on questions I often ask is, what am I not saying that needs to be said? And almost invariably, it's I'm not saying something that's probably going to piss somebody off. Because it avoids conflict, yeah. So it avoids people being mad at me. It's a very particular kind of conflict. It's like, what you know, there's somehow, and I get it. I get it. You know, I have a book that's come out. There's a part of me that worries that people are going to get pissed off at me. Oh, my God. And yet, what is it that I really want? I want people to have conversation, even if they disagree. So... That's one of the ways I continue. I can continue to do that. And when I catch myself, instead of beating myself up, I just say, okay, that's actually not the world I want. So now I have to lean into saying what I need to say or hearing what I need to hear or seeing that people are speaking, even if they're saying something I don't want to hear. Those are all really important rules, if you will, for a leader to follow. 
The other thing I want to ask you, you've discussed how leaders, I think, unknowingly, and we'll give them the benefit of that, but unknowingly fall into the trap of toxic leadership. What are some of the warning signs that I would say they should look for, or maybe the people around them should look for, that someone is slipping into toxic leadership? Because we seem to have plenty of that going on today. Well, a great example would be I and my colleagues will often be called into an organization because the organization, quote unquote, has a trust issue. And it can show up in things like not being able to take risks, not being able to innovate. And so then I will cut through and I say, well, are you telling each other the truth? Oh, no, no, no. We don't trust each other. We can't tell each other the truth, right? And of course, we're laughing because they've reversed the equation, if you will, right? Trust is an outcome of truth-telling, not the cause. Right. This is Lencioni's sort of... Exactly. Yeah. Bottom of the pyramid. Exactly. Yeah. So if you think about like toxic organizations, they're sort of implicitly toxic and then they're explicitly toxic. The explicitly toxic organizations put up with behavior that you would never put up with in other circumstances in your life. And it's when those who empower can't manage the conflict. I can't fire my racist head of sales. They're the best performing salesperson. Yeah. Brilliant jerk. Problem. Brilliant jerks, <laughs> right? Then there are the implicitly toxic situations where people shade the truth constantly with each other or where they uh, or read. If you haven't read it, read The Fund, which is Rob Copeland's book on Bridgewater. I've been hearing anecdotes <laughs> about it from a lot of people. Yeah. 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 It sounds like yeah, it might dent it the sales of principles a little bit. Yes. Take a look at it. It's kind of an interesting challenge for sure. So, All right, Jerry, I know we could probably go on for hours, but I'll, I'll bring you to my constant last question, which is multivariant. It could be singular, repeated, it could be personal or professional. But what's a mistake that you've learned the most from? Not speaking up more often than not. And it roots back into what we were saying before. 90% of the time, the mistakes that I have seen, that I have lived through or caused are rooted in an unwillingness to say the thing that really might upset somebody. I'll be 60 in a few weeks. I think I've finally internalized that, <laughs> that that is the root cause of many of my quote unquote mistakes. Well, Jerry, thank you for joining us today. I hope all the listeners joining us and, and listening in will check out Reunion to learn more about your insights and, and experience. Thanks for having me. It was a delight having this conversation. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Jerry and his new book, Reunion, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to follow the show to be notified about new episodes and have them downloaded and ready to go for you to listen. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests. 
like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.